Would you turn in your Bibles to John, the book, the Gospel of John? We're talking about John the Baptist again this week. This strange and wonderful prophet of prophets, the forerunner of the Messiah, the trailblazer of the kingdom. He was the one sent by God to kick off this new movement in history. And so it is appropriate for us to learn from him as we kick off this new year. The new year is the beginning of something, right? And for many of us, we see this as this season as a season of reflection and resolution. And we see it as a fresh start, at least in some small way. I've often found myself very grateful to God for how many little fresh starts he gives us. His mercies are new every morning. And his mercies are new every new year. And as we enter into this new year, there's two things that I want us to learn from John the Baptist. He has given us two of the most important pieces of wisdom for us to learn from. Two statements from him that I pray will carry us, carry, that we will carry with us throughout this whole new year. I, and I believe will change our lives. Truly. These two statements, they were spoken in very specific contexts with very specific meanings, but I believe that they can and should be generalized for all of us to learn from in our lives. So let me tell them to you, and then we'll read them in the text that they come from. The two most important lessons that ought to shape our lives this year are, one, behold the Lamb of God, and two, he must increase, but I must decrease. I truly believe that these statements from John the Baptist are the two most important and life-changing pieces of wisdom to live by. I want them to be the mantra seared into our hearts in 2022. This is how I want you to enter this new year, preaching to your soul, behold the Lamb of God who takes my sins away. And he must increase, and I must decrease. So let's read these texts. They're both found in the Gospel of John. The first is in chapter 1, starting in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Now, turn to John chapter 3, also starting in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Now, when you 
read the beginning of John's gospel in particular, if you're like me, you might wonder why John the Baptist is a part of this story at all. Why does John have to prepare the way? I mean, the word, John tells us the word is becoming flesh, a cr- the creator, a creature. The light and life of the world, he, is he not powerful enough and bright enough to make himself known? To make any necessary preparations himself? The Messiah should need no introduction. He is to be a prophet himself, after all. So why does he need a worse prophet as an opening act? And if you ask questions like this, in faith that there are answers, you begin to see them. And I think that one answer is that God is saying this from the outset, this is to be the way of his Messiah. He is to have witnesses. People whose lives point to him. He wants to involve mere men in making himself known. And John the Baptist is an excellent example of all who would be witnesses of this Christ. John pointed clearly, consistently, joyfully at Jesus and away from himself. When people are asking him about himself, he says, you want to know who I am? You're asking about the wrong person. There is one so much greater than me that I am unworthy to untie his sandals. Now, untying sandals was an incredibly lowly and even disgusting task. And Jesus, he says, is of such greatness that doing such a thing for him would be such a great honor that he is not even worthy to do that. He doesn't say, I'm only worthy to do that. I'm not worthy to do that. And he's not exaggerating. He has a more realistic view of himself and of Jesus than most of us do. But though he had this depth of humility, he was incredibly courageous and confident, wasn't he? I mean, you read about his life, he exudes that. And sometimes when we think about humility, we only think of meek and mild or of low self-esteem leading to a lack of confidence. But this man of incredible humility is also a man of great boldness. And that's because his eyes were somewhere else than where ours usually are. He wasn't looking to what others thought about him. He wasn't looking to what he thought about himself. He was beholding the Lamb of God. His greatness came from his devotion to greatness outside of himself. Any influence or strength he had came not from his own cleverness or his own wisdom or power, but it flowed into him and through him from his God and the glory of the one to whom he was always pointing. And he says to us all, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the wonderful way that he talks about Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? To say the least. Even a little strange. Many of you have uh, resolved to read through the Bible this year. Some for the first time. And if you stick with it for even a couple months, you'll experience a strange shift. This this. Bible is this riveting read, and then all of a sudden, it's weirdly about farm animals. 
Without warning, this epic tale of global events and human relationships morphs into a book about livestock. And what's the hinge on which this door swings? Where does the livestock meet the momentous movements of God? It happens on a night that we've come to call Passover. When God mightily freed his people from slavery in Egypt, God's final plague of judgment on Egypt was one so severe that it finally persuaded Pharaoh to free God's people and let them go. Is where God made his people perform a sign in order to be protected. Something about this plague was different. It was, this judgment would affect everyone, even God's people, and God would strike dead the firstborn of every home in Egypt unless they killed a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over their doorposts. Death would come to every home. They would either have a dead lamb or a dead son. It was, the, it was only faith that spared the households from this plague. Faith expressed in action, the belief that the blood of this lamb would lead to them being spared God's wrath. They remembered then, after that night, they remembered this somber night of salvation evermore with a feast that they called Passover. Where the Jews would, in remembrance, eat unleavened bread and, of course, what else? A lamb. And the night before Jesus died, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And every gospel that tells us about this mentions the bread. But none of them mention a lamb. So either Jesus intentionally didn't have a lamb there, or the gospel authors intentionally left the lamb out of the account. Either way, it leads to the same question. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that spares, whose blood spares them the wrath of God? And as you probably know, Jesus took this symbolic meal and he transformed it into the meal we call the Lord's Supper. He's saying this meal points to me. Where's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. If you were here last week, you know that John the Baptist, was, he was steeped in the prophecies of Isaiah. He even saw himself in those prophecies. God's message through Isaiah shaped the way, the, the theological imagination of John. So when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it has Isaiah's foundation. So listen to Isaiah 53. In that, that chapter, we see this mysterious suffering servant who is spoken of like this. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And then later in that chapter, he says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the Lamb of God, led to the slaughter, who bore the sin of many. His death takes away the sin of the world. If you have sinned and death is coming, but there's a Lamb who has been slain in your place, bearing your sin in himself to remove it from you, to take it away as far as the east is from the west. 
And so how do we respond? John says, behold. Behold this lamb. The apostle John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote a letter later in life when God gave him a vision. And in that vision, he elaborates on this. And in, in Revelation 5, he says, Among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he, that lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering in myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We see three responses to the Lamb here. The elders sing, they're joined by thousands of angels, and then every creature everywhere, each song calling him the lamb and singing of his worthiness. They are captivated by him as the lamb who was slain. And this is our response to Jesus as the lamb. As John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God, behold Behold is the word for seeing with eyes full of wonder, more than just seeing. To see is simply to receive information. To behold is to engage with that information as it ushers you into the profound and the wondrous, into a greater vision, into an experience that is beyond the superficial and more alive than mere analysis. Look and listen. Pause and pay attention. Behold. The Bible constantly beckons us to behold. When when God uh, completes his creation, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When Moses encountered the angel of the Lord, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. After Pilate has Jesus beaten, before sending him off to be crucified, he brings him before the Jews and says, far better than he knew, behold your king. And when Jesus comes at the end, he will say, Behold, I am making all things new. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming as the beginning of his ministry, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You won't behold him rightly unless you're beholding him like that, as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. When you sin, do you hide and run from him? Then you're not seeing him rightly. He's the lamb who takes your sins away. You need them taken away. He is the one who takes sin away. The only alternative for you 
is to do exactly what some of you were thinking about doing at the beginning of the year, getting back on the treadmill, the treadmill of trying to do your best and be good and follow Jesus while having a defective view of him, that his mercy and his grace is running out for you. You're hoping to not use it all up before you get to the end. But you're not seeing him rightly. Your failure and sin results in more grace not less. You know that? That's the surprising teaching of Scripture. Where your sin abounds, His grace abounds all the more. That is His glory. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold Him. Set your gaze on Him. Hour by hour, abide in him. Become personally acquainted with him. He is a person, not just a concept. Look to his love and draw strength from him. You will only grow and only heal as you behold the Lamb of God. If you take your eyes off of Jesus and direct your gaze anywhere else, even to your own growth or healing or achievement, you will undermine what you're aiming for. Techniques, strategies, resolutions will all be for nothing. Undo every distraction and look to Christ. Simplify your heart and its cares. Behold the Lamb of God. Be astonished at Him and at His heart. Wonder at His worthiness like they did in Revelation when they sang that song, You are worthy for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Live as one of those ransomed people. Receiving His inconceivable love for sinners. Let Him draw near to you. Let Him draw you near to Himself. Behold Him. And as you do, you will be changed. You will be transformed. You, you can't change your own heart, and, and altering your behavior is not real change. Take your eyes off of yourself and glue them on our Lord, the Lamb. This is how John the Baptist lived. And, ex, and as that's expressed in the second statement of the two that we're looking at this morning. In John chapter 3... Some of John's disciples come to him, uh, and they were like, hey, Jesus is over there baptizing like you, and everybody's going to him now instead of you. And how does John the Baptist respond to that? Not like many of us would. He, instead of any envy or disappointment or grumbling, John experienced the exact opposite, joy. He, sa he said that this makes my joy complete. He said that his joy is like the best man at a wedding. The bride is going to the groom, and that makes him very happy. I remember my wedding weekend. We had this uh, small, intimate wedding, kind of like a, we did like a weekend getaway thing. And it was so special because every person there was so servant-hearted toward us and exuding such joy and love for Audrey and I. It was palpable. And I never even felt bad for receiving so much attention. And neither did Audrey because we could clearly see that it was bringing everyone such joy to celebrate us like they were. I'd never experienced anything like it. 
I could see so clearly the genuine joy that came from people as they forgot about themselves in celebrations of one that they loved. The kind of joy that John had when people forgot about him as they looked to Christ. So if he wanted to take the attention, it would be like the best man trying to take the bride. It would not only ruin the wedding, but it would ruin the deep joy that he could have in rejoicing with his best friend who's getting married. He sees himself, and rightly so, as a pointer. And we too are pointers. Our lives are meant to point to the bridegroom. When you point to something, you want people to look where you're pointing. You don't want them to look at your finger, right? But that's what we foolishly do at times. We decorate our fingers with all these frills and, and hoping that people will look at them some instead of where we're really pointing. Like we're like we're Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune or something. But then we're undermining the very thing that we're meant to do. Our purpose in pointing is that people will look where we're pointing, not at us. And that is why John says those amazing words, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase. That is the pursuit of joy. He must increase. That's the song of a healthy heart. Did you know that? Those who really taste the bread of life and the living water, they want more of it. As St. Bernard wrote in a hymn, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. We want him to increase. We want more, not just the minimum. That's the test of healthy faith. Faith, I want you to know, can, can be genuine, but it can be sick. It can be anemic. And weak. And one of the main tests is are you longing for more or satisfied with scraping by with bare minimums? Do you want him to increase in your life and keep taking more and more of it? Do you want him to know him more, to see him more, to love him more? Do you want others to know him more and see him more? Do you want to be a part of that? If not, your faith isn't in a healthy place, it's sick. And John the Baptist has diagnosed its disease. It's a failure to say and mean the second part of that verse. It's an unwillingness to decrease. It may be easy to agree with that first part. He must increase. But it's harder for us to wrap ourselves around that second part. I must decrease. I want you to practice literally saying that to yourself at some point. You don't have to do it right now, but later. I must decrease. This is so counter to modern self-help philosophy, much of which has started to invade Christianity, a kind of undercover message of self-fulfillment with God's stamp of approval. When we keep over-inserting ourselves, we have a wrong view of God. You see him as, as watching your performance rather than involved in your growth himself. Like he's a spectator rather than a partner or even the primary actor. And when he's just a spectator, there's two options. He's either a displeased and impatient spectator, which leads to crippling shame, or he's a pleasantly pleased spectator, golf clapping at our self-improvement. And it's this second one that I see more and more of. 
There's a therapeutic self-actualization theology that would, say, that would never say, I must decrease. That would be anathema. But it says instead, I need to put myself and my goals first. I need to become my authentic self, not apologizing for who I am. This is God's will for my life. But really, this is a distortion and even a subtle lie offering us the best of both worlds. We can continue to desire the things of this world and make much of ourselves while we feel like we're pleasing God. But it makes, us hard, it, makes it hard for us to say with true joy what the Apostle Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer I. Can you rejoice in not being a part of the picture? You'll never have the complete joy of John the Baptist if you don't say with him, he must increase and I must decrease. I've known so many people slowly strangled by the search for themselves. In that desperate hunt for themselves, they actually lose themselves, is the sad irony. Destroying their marriages because they deserve someone better who, who really gets them. Damaging their bodies because they want them to be more attention-grabbing or more reflective of their true selves. People lacking contentment of all kinds because they're not living up to their potential in life. Whether losing joy and caring for children because it's not a great enough purpose. Or making compromises to get into some inner ring. Always envious of those more inside and looking down on those more outside. I've known people become spiritually disillusioned because their faith didn't lead to the kind of self-fulfillment that they hoped. I've known spiritual leaders whose faith has become cold and even dead because they couldn't let themselves decrease. It had to be about them. I've known and loved people in all these situations. Seeking self is destructive and it's seductive. I've been there too. I'm not even completely out of the woods. I've, I'm just far enough along on my journey out that I'm no longer embarrassed to tell you how far, deep in the woods I was, especially when I was younger. I'm I, always trying to shape and cultivate an identity of my own, always trying to increase myself. And when I gained perspective for a while, I thought that was just the sin of, of youth. But the older I get and the more older people I know, I realize it's not just young people and youth. It's everyone. It just takes different forms. So I want to share with you something that, that uh, was a part of God changing my life. My senior year in high school, uh, my dear friend Audrey Ladder, later to be known as Audrey Carr, she handed me this book in homeroom uh, that she'd been reading and thought that I would like. It was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a book that would be a blessing to me in so many ways at so many points in my life, but especially in college when I got around to finishing it. I wasn't a big reader back then and read the end. And I read it at a time when I was desperately searching for identity, for my true self. And it helped to begin for me to make the counterintuitive journey to actually finding myself. I'm setting the stage here because I'm going to read you quite a, and talk about this quite a bit, but I hope you listen well because I'm what I'm telling, I'm telling you is so good, so important, so true. And if you understand this, you will, you will, it will lead you to the freedom that John the Baptist had. So Lewis 
as he nears the end of his book, he's addressing this, uh, a very good question that he imagines some of us might have uh, after reading what he said in the previous couple chapters. Because um, he's told us that Christ wants to make us new. And to become new, new men means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves and into Christ we must go, he says. He, his will is to become our will, and we are to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. So the question he imagines us asking after that is, if Christ is one and he is to be in all of us, won't we all then be exactly the same? It certainly sounds like it, but that's not actually the case. Lewis then uses the illustration of salt. See, if you give someone salt uh, who had never known anything about it, they would taste a very strong and sharp taste, right? And then if you tell them where we come from, we put that on basically everything we cook, they would assume that all of our food tasted exactly the same, wouldn't they? But we know that salt actually brings out the distinct flavor of things. In fact, you don't get their real full taste until you've added it. Lewis says it's something like that with Christ and us. The more we get out of what we now call ourselves, out of, if we, the more we get ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more fully ourselves we become. And there's so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. And in that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. He's, he says that he talks about how we flatter ourselves when we think that our various attributes and decisions and ideas are originating with us and our own unique selves. He says, what we really so proudly call myself is merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. As John the Baptist would say, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John the Baptist is saying there the same thing way before Lewis would say it, that when we think of our possessions and our personalities as our own, as long as we're thinking that way, they'll never really be ours. It's when we realize that they are gifts from God and when we offer them back to him, it's only then that they become ours in any real and lasting way. Now let me read you how Lewis ends his book, a whole paragraph you need to hear. He says, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self will come as long as you, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for everyday matters. Even in social life, you never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it's been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. 
The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death to your ambitions, to your favorite wishes every day, and death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. But nothing that in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. This is what John the Baptist knew when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He longed for more of Christ, not just scraping by on the minimum, and he had joy, complete joy. Joy, that's what I want for all of us, the greatest possible joy, which is not found in self-fulfillment, but in self-abandonment, in beholding the Lamb of God. Let John the Baptist's words resonate through your whole 2022, calling you again and again to behold the Lamb of God that he may increase and I may decrease. Be a pointer like John. Point people. To the Lamb. Experience the freedom of not needing to fight for your own preferences and agendas. Be content with disappearing in the pursuit of pointing. Because if you do, you'll gain the ultimate greatness. Being used to point people to something infinitely greater than yourself. I began last week talking about Jesus' bold and surprising claim that John the Baptist was the greatest man in history. But what I left out was his even bolder and more surprising claim that the least in the kingdom is greater than him. You, new covenant believer in Jesus, are truly greater than Moses and David and Alexander the Great and Socrates and John the Baptist. I hope that's a little bit, at least a little bit surprising to you. Otherwise, you might be a narcissist. But how can that possibly be true? It doesn't seem true, right? In the way we generally think about greatness. So to me, it begs the question, what does it mean to be great? What's Jesus think, at least? What we usually think about of greatness is someone who has some exceeding attribute of mind or body and has used that to make some momentous achievements. Okay, so hold that in your mind as you hear these words from John the Baptist again. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Not even one thing, he says. Not even a smart mind or a strong body unless it is given to him. Not even opportunities or achievements. So what then makes those great men great? Having great gifts from heaven. Now we're getting somewhere. 
So if all that ever made a great person great was having great gifts from God, what is the greatest gift from God? Well, remember how John the Baptist said he had such great and complete joy in being Jesus' best man at his wedding? Well, who is the only other person at that wedding who is more blessed than the best man? The bride, of course. And that is who you are. You're a member of the church, which is the bride of Christ. He has that kind of love for you, that kind of joy in you. You don't need to make yourself great. You are great. Jesus said so. You're not great for any reason that can bolster your pride, but then again, no one ever really is if they understand reality rightly. Instead, you are dearly loved and called. He has chosen to love you. He has died for you. To take away your sins so that he can have you forever. You are a part of the greatest story in history. The bride of Christ. The people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. You don't need to prove yourself. You need to behold the Lamb. Live for him. Long for him to increase as you decrease. This is the path to true and lasting joy. Let's pray. Our Father, draw our eyes to your Lamb who takes away our sins. Your Son, who unites us as his bride. And give us joy and freedom to be fully, wholly his, no longer needing to be our own. May our whole church and all the individual lives here be used as pointers to your glory. We look to you and we love you. May we decrease as Jesus increases and we pray in his worthy name. Amen.